Well, good evening. Glad you guys are back. Uh, since last week, everything's settled down in the Middle East, and there's really nothing to talk about. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm glad you're here. Just make yourself comfortable, and come on, I know there's still folks coming in, but uh, we'll go ahead and get started with uh, continuing our series on biblical origins of the modern Middle East. Now, a lot of this has been a little lighter than I wanted on the biblical origins, and that's really We'll hit that pretty heavily in our, our last lesson next week, our last in this series. We'll start a new series right after that. Uh, but we're, I really just want to get you some geopolitical and economic information so we can sort through what's happening. And every week builds, and then next time we'll be able to have a really interesting discussion about, so where's this going? Where does this, how does this play itself out? And what is God's hand, could it possibly be? What could God's purpose possibly be in this situation? But just to remind you where we've been, we're going to talk about the radical side of uh, Islam and hopefully give us a little better feel for the different players and what they're trying to achieve in the Middle East. And it adds another layer of complexity, but it'll start to make a lot of things make sense. Uh, as always, text your questions during class to that number, and we'll answer as many as we can. Big picture, modern Middle East. Uh, we want to talk about the different layers of, of players in there. We started with the nation of Israel, relative newcomer to the Middle East, if you recall. The nation of Israel is formed in 1947 in its modern form, but there are some enclaves inside Israel of hostile forces. You have the uh, Fatah basically running the West Bank area, Hamas effectively running the Gaza Strip. There's supposed to be a coalition government between the two, but you may have read in the latest week that there's a lot of tension between Hamas and Fatah. And then the Golan Heights, the, the border with Syria has been problematic. We talked about the main thing to remember about Israel is that as it approaches Middle Eastern issues, Israel understands itself to have not only a historic, but a God-given right to this land, Israel also sees every threat as an existential threat. In other words, when you live in a country that at its widest is only 60 miles across, at its narrowest is nine miles across, that your fighter jets can cross your country in less than five seconds, you know, you don't have a lot of buffer zone around you. So Israel sees every threat as a threat to its very existence. We then talked about the Arab world. These are nations that, uh, going back over a thousand years, have become culturally and linguistically, in many cases, Arabic. The Arab countries, a couple of things to remember about. This is a picture of the Arab League, the 22 nations that make up the Arab League. The thing to remember about that is, first of all, there are over 400 million people in this, these Arab countries, and approximately half of them are less than age 25. So you have a lot of young people. Second thing is you have fairly weak economies in most cases and very weak institutions. These nations, we talked about the Sykes-Picot Agreement and how some of these nations were formed after World War I, but stop and think about it. That's not very far back to be a nation. It's not very far back to have institutions like courts and law and culture, a national culture. So you have fairly weak institutions, you have fairly weak economies, you have an awful lot of unemployed young men, and that is just a tinderbox. 
It's a tinderbox for revolt. You saw that in the Arab Spring. If you remember the uprisings in many of these countries, uh, Egypt overthrown, and Libya, Tunisia. I mean, you get all these you know, uprisings of popular trying to overthrow the government. And you see a lot of regime change happening. In Egypt, it was scary for a while because what happens is weak institutions, a lot of unrest, you tend to get the radical elements come in and inflame these young people. You see turmoil, and then there's a power vacuum. The people who begin this difficulty, the, the popular uprising, are not powerful enough to fill the power vacuum. Egypt's a great example. After you have this popular liberal democratic uprising in Egypt, who ends up in power? Muslim Brotherhood. It's, it's not a liberal democratic group at all. And then, of course, as you know, in Egypt, for example, the military has to step in and literally overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood, kicked them out. So you see a lot of turmoil there, but you see nations that are committed to their national interests, but they're not particularly strong nations. Then we exploded this into, and let's move from an Arab ethnic cultural background to Islam. And we talked about the history of Islam, and this is kind of a world picture of Islam. One of the key things we looked at there, there are a lot of complexities, but one of the, the one you can't ignore is the Sunni and Shiite split within Islam. We talked about that in our last lesson, so I won't go over it, but I do want to highlight one thing we didn't talk about. On this map, the lighter green are the areas of the Islamic world that are Sunni Muslim. That's about 89% of Muslims in the world are Sunni Muslims. The dark green are Shiites, or Shia Muslims, and that's about 11% approximately of the world Muslim population. But I want you to notice where the Shiites are concentrated, the dark green area. In the Middle East, which is just that geography around Saudi Arabia, Palestine, Turkey, Iran, it's, the Shiites are 35% of the population. So in the Middle East, you actually see more, it's not like a 90% Sunni and 10% Shiite. No, it's more like two-thirds, one-third, and that causes a very unstable situation as well. The uh, governments, and this is kind of key, you saw this in the news this week. As the United States tries to make a coalition, I'm going to take a detour because this is going to make some of this make sense. As the United States tries to put together a coalition to confront the Islamic State, whom we'll talk about uh, in a few minutes, tries to confront the Islamic State, you get a variety of Muslim nations that sign on. But within that coalition, there are real issues. The Islamic State is a Sunni organization. Again, we'll talk about them more in a little bit. You have three countries that are basically Shiite-dominated governments. Iran, completely Shiite theocracy. And Syria is a Shiite-controlled government. And Iraq is now Shiite-controlled. So those three nations. The Islamic State, or ISIS, I'll probably call them both, ISIS or the Islamic State, is in the process of taking over Iraq and Syria. So you have a coalition to stop them. Well, what kind of governments are they trying to overthrow? They're Sunnis trying to overthrow Shiite governments. So if you're Saudi Arabia or Egypt, one of the other Sunni countries, wait a minute, do I, I don't really like the Islamic State, but on the other hand, do I really want to go stop this group 
to strengthen Shiite governments in the region. You see some of the complexity there? Is even within Islam, this Sunni-Shiite split, balance of power is very delicate. And when we get to the appropriate place, I'll tell you why the entire Middle East is worried about Iran. So in the news this week, when you read about this discontent in the coalition, some of that is because the uh, countries like uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia have two enemies here. They're not happy with the Islamic State, but they're not happy with these Shiite control, you know, spreading Shiite governments. Make sense? And consequently, that's a real issue to put together a coalition to, uh, to get really focused on that. Despite the Sunni-Shiite split, though, Islam as a religion preaches the unity of all Muslims. It's called the Ummah or the body. Think of it kind of like the church. In other words, all Christians throughout the world, I've always said to you that Christians across the world have a stronger bond with you. Their values, their beliefs are closer to you than your secular next door neighbor. And that's the way Islam thinks is that we're all Muslims. So you have the Sunni Shiite split, but you also have this sense of Muslims banding together. That makes it even more complex when you get a Western power that comes in. Because the one thing that will unite warring Muslims is hatred of Israel and Western interference. And so what you have in this coalition, for example, are some Western states coming in to try to build a coalition between Sunnis and Shiites. You see, so you can see the levels of complexity there and why it's gonna be very delicate to get a coalition that actually does anything. But the Sunni-Shiite split is important. The idea of Islam as is a unifying force. But the key thing to, to remember out of Islam is the idea of the marrying of political and religious power. Islam began as not just a nation, not just a religion. It began with those two things together. And you still see that. Even in the secular governments there, there's still a very strong sense of Islam. And Islam sees itself not as a, there's no idea of separation of church and state, for example. In other words, Islam understands itself as having a role not just in your spiritual life, but in the political life. Those two things together give rise to the idea of sacred war, of holy conquest that riddles the history of Islam, and you're seeing it played out now. Because the only way you can read the papers and watch the news and say, how can anyone justify doing this? For example, we tend to think, how could anyone's religion justify treating people this way? As a Christian, that's not very understandable, because Christianity focuses on our spiritual relationship with God. Islam is not only a religion, it's also political. Those two things come together and very comfortable with the idea of a holy war, of doing things that appear unspeakable in the name of your religion. Which brings me to, to how I wanna go back and past just a little bit so we can work our way up to the modern terrorist groups. Now let's talk about the origin of Islam because I wanna draw a parallel with early Islam and what you see today. I'm not gonna, trying to make the point that what you see today is true to early Islam. I just wanna make this simple point. Islam exploded out of Saudi Arabia at the end of Muhammad's life. Muhammad lived from 570 AD to 632 AD. In the next 100 years, Islamic armies explode out of Arabia. And they basically take this message. 
and you've heard it before, convert or die. Actually, there were three options. Let me show you a verse from the Quran. This is one of the more famous verses. It says, fight those people of the book who do not truly believe in Allah on the last day. Do not obey the role of justice until they pay the tax and agree to submit. So three, according to traditional Islam, three choices. You could accept Islam. You know, the army shows up and says, you can all become Muslims. You can pay a tax and then you'll be allowed to exist peacefully, but you will not be able to exercise your religion. I mean, you're not gonna be able to go proselytize or anything. And by the way, you see that now in some nations. You can live as a Christian in some Muslim nations. You can't go tell other people about Christianity. That's against the law. But you can live somewhat peacefully, it, it kind of varies, in some Muslim nations because of this idea. Or your third option is, we'll kill you. Well, historically, and even in early Islam, sometimes that got shortened to, you know what, convert or die. I mean, it really did come down to that, and that's what you hear coming out of the Islamic State today. My point to you is not to say that the Islamic State completely captures early Islam. I just want to point out, this is not new. This is not that foreign to Islam. The first hundred years looked like that. Convert, pay the tax, or die. That is how Islam exploded. And I want to contrast that with Christianity. Because from a Muslim point of view, which I'll get to in a second, they don't really see a lot of difference historically between those two. But I'm gonna to argue to you that there's a huge difference in two ways. First of all, Christianity begins in its first 200 years, and really for quite some time, with no one ever picking up a sword. That's not how Christianity spread. It's not how Christianity conquered the Roman Empire conquered the Roman Empire without any Christian ever picking up a sword and striking anyone. It conquered the Roman Empire with love, with sacrifice, with the word of God. Islam, on the contrary, conquered a big part of the known world in the first 100 years with the sword. They're very different in the way that they begin. So that's the first difference. The second difference is embedded within Christianity is a way of understanding your faith and governments and secular life that is very different than Islam. Islamic understanding is this, is your faith and your politics are the same thing and everybody in the world needs to submit to Allah. Everyone needs to become a Muslim. Christianity wants everyone to become a Christian but by different means and Christianity has built into it a better, what I'm gonna argue is a really different understanding of how secular governments apply. Here's an example from Matthew 22. This is Jesus being asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You remember at the time that was a very volatile question, but I'll leave that aside for a minute because I wanna to get to his answer. So they uh, bring him, a, he says, well, show me the coin that I'm supposed to use to pay the tax. They bring it. He says, whose picture's on it? I said, well, Caesar's picture's on it. And he says, well, then, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. That's an idea that you do not find at all in the Quran, And it's not exactly a separation of church and state, because Christians don't actually believe in a separation of church and state the way it's understood in our country today. But what it does say is that there is a role to be played by secular governments, and that your faith actually operates on a different plane. In other words, there's not a call from Jesus to say, I'd like all of your governments to be a theocracy. I want you to take the New Testament and that will be the constitution of your nation. 
Jesus does not contemplate that necessity. The Quran does. Jesus says there are spheres of influence, and it goes on in Romans 13, it's just another great passage, that says everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. There's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Then it goes on to talk about what those authorities have been established by God to do. In other words, the, the Bible lays out what your government is supposed to do for you. But let's not talk about that tonight or we'll get really derailed. <laughs> but Christianity comp, you know, really contemplates the idea that secular governments have a role, that God has something for them to do, and that the gospel is going to work, and they're going to in some way play a part in that. That is completely foreign to Islam. So Christianity is very comfortable with the idea of a secular nation and God using that for his purposes. Quran is not. Every secular nation needs to become an Islamic nation. Okay? So radical difference in how you see the world. The second idea is this, because some people are going to say, well, what about the Crusades? That's a very good question. The Crusades for Christianity are an aberration. No one is going to argue that the Crusades represent authentic or original Christianity. It was imperialism under the guise of religion. It happened, and people who said, I'm Christian, did it. It's not original. What's happening in the Middle East today is indeed linked back to the origin of Islam. Again, I'm not trying to malign Islam. I simply want to point out that Islam and Christianity very different in this regard. But the fact that the Crusades happened has hugely influenced the uh, Middle Eastern idea of Western powers, and particularly the United States. Osama bin Laden, and in fact, this is just very prevalent in the Muslim world, understand Western involvement in the Middle East as being another example of the Crusades. If it were Islam doing it, that's what they would be doing. We want to conquer this for Islam. So they, and they say in the past of Christianity, I remember a thousand years ago, there were Christian armies that came over here and did exactly that. You and I know that's not the motive of Western Christianity. Western Christianity has become very comfortable with the idea of secular nation states, and we, you don't hear from pulpits in the United States saying, okay, as you do in mosques, all of you guys need to start going to a training camp because we're going to have this big old Christian army and we're all going to go march and we're going to take over some other country. I mean, what a foreign idea to Christianity. That's not a foreign idea to Islam. And again, I'm not trying to malign Islam. I want you to understand there are very different ideas here. But... If you lived in that part of the world and you, had, you were taught this history in school, what would you think about Western involvement? You would see it as very much an aggressive move. Now, the Koran very much allows Islamic nations to protect themselves. And so Muslims in the Middle East, radical Muslims in the Middle East, understand their fight against the Western powers as a defensive struggle. Any involvement we have, they, they frame it in the sense of imperialism. Does that make sense? Okay. I probably hit that too hard, but I want you to understand, because we sit here and we read the papers, how could these people be attacking us? They don't think they're attacking us. They think they're defending themselves. 
against Western imperialism. I'm not telling you that's right. I'm telling you that it, you see it very differently, which tells you this. Any thought that we can reason with radical Islam, not because they're too stupid to reason, or these are not smart people, but any thought that we can sit down and, and talk this through from a common basis simply ignores the historic realities. Does that make sense? It just doesn't, there is no common ground here. We can't even agree on each other's motives. So consequently, you will see in the rise of Islam a certain mindset toward the West to which the West has contributed, and Christianity has contributed, unfortunately, at times, that's not compatible with your view of your religion. So we have really different views and really different aims. And the, the understanding of the radical groups is they are simply responding to Christian aggression in the Middle East. The fact that Osama bin Laden, if you remember, one of his big issues was that there were American troops in Saudi Arabia, actually on traditional Arabic Muslim soil, and that looked like an invasion, okay? So that's how, kind of how they see the world, and it leads to uh, an idea called jihad. So let's talk about jihadism for a second. Jihad is a word that appears uh, in over 150 verses in the Quran, and it simply means a struggle or a striving. Jihadism is the striving against the enemies of Islam, and it is the struggle to establish a united Islam in the world. In other words, the whole world needs to be Islamic. Now, you and I agree in the sense that the whole world needs to be Christian. Everyone needs to be saved, but our methods are a little bit different. Here's a verse from the Quran, just an example. Let those of you who are willing to trade the life of this world for the life to come, fight in Allah's way. Fight is jihad, wage jihad, struggle. To anyone who makes jihad in Allah's way, whether he be killed or victorious, we shall give a very great reward. So you get this idea of a holy war, a holy struggle. Now to be fair, in the Quran, they contemplate four ways of struggling. One is called a struggle of the heart, to purify your heart. And it's reported that, the, uh, that Muhammad said that's the greatest jihad, is the struggle to purify your heart and obey God. And then there's the jihad of the hand, of service, of helping other people. The jihad of the tongue, that would be what we'd call evangelism, telling people and convincing them. And then the jihad of the sword. The the way that radical Islam has understood it, and I would argue that the way that Islam began and spread was with jihad of the sword, but I don't want to deny the other possibilities. In some of the sayings of the prophets, Muhammad is quoted as saying, the best jihad is the one in which your horse is slain and your blood is spilled. In other words, jihad of the sword was a very real thing. This striving against the enemies by conquering them is a way of jihad. But here's the reason I bring this up, because that's what we're going to focus on. And here, here's what I'm bringing this up, is there are Muslims in the world who understand jihad in a peaceful way. There's no question that there are Muslims who understand Islam as being a peaceful religion. And we talked about the early sayings of Muhammad and the later sayings, and that if you want to focus on a certain group of sayings, you can understand Islam in a peaceful way. But here's my point. Those are not the Muslims who are shaping the future of Islam in the world today. I do not argue that there are Muslims who see jihad in a peaceful way. 
I'm simply arguing that they are not guiding the future of Islam in the world. They are not the ones influencing it. It is the groups who see the armed struggle against the enemies of Islam that are shaping and redrawing the map of the world today. Well, this jihad takes a couple of forms, one relatively recent and one that you've been used to for the past 20 years or so. So let me tell you about the first form of jihad. It's called Islamism. Islamism is the idea of the rule of Islam over the social and political aspects of life, the merger of religion and nationalism. That's a very Islamic concept. I mean, no, I mean that's why it's called Islamism, the idea that you're not supposed to have a government that's different than your religion. Sharia law is basically religious law becomes the law of your country. For example, Saudi Arabia is a perfect example of that. Saudi Arabia is an Islamic country, meaning that the rulers, the government of Saudi Arabia is Muslim. The law of Saudi Arabia is Sharia law. Saudi Arabia adheres to, and I'll tell you in a minute about this, but they adhere to a very conservative form of Islam. So they would not dream of having a, an organization like we have in the United States. The government is secular, and we Christians live in a secular government. That's not acceptable to Islam. So Islamism is the merger of your social and political life with religion. Okay? And you will see a number of these groups trying to turn nations in the Middle East into that. The founder of the Muslim Brotherhoods, a guy named Hassan al-Banna, is founded in 1920. And if you remember, that, that's not coincidental. Founded, he's an Egyptian. It's founded in 1920. Remember, after World War I, the Ottoman Empire, the, the last great Islamic empire, is broken up and humiliated, and the Middle East is carved up, and Islam looks like it's going nowhere. And so Hassan al-Banna comes into the scene and he says, we're going to go wage jihad, this struggle against the enemies of Islam. And if you suffer death in the way of Allah, it will be to your profit in this world and your reward in the next. In other words, the idea of jihad comes back into play in a big way. Like we need to begin struggling against these non-Islamic countries. And so he founds the Muslim Brotherhood. And he thought, his, originally, the Muslim Brotherhood started as a social arm and a jihad of the tongue, go convince people. And what they wanted was the nations in which they lived to become Islamic nations, the government to be Islamic. Well, they realized pretty quickly that the governments did not want to do that. And so it turns into a more revolutionary form. And so in the mid-20th century, a guy named Said Qutb, and he's a very influential guy, transformed the Muslim Brotherhood into a revolutionary force. He's going to set up the kingdom of Allah on earth, and he's going to eliminate the kingdom of man. Now, we're not talking about the West. We're still talking about Islamic countries. Muslim Brotherhood tried to overthrow uh, the Saudi Arabian government. They tried to overthrow the Egyptian government. In other words, the governments found themselves protecting themselves against this more radical form of Islam that wanted Islamic nations. It wanted all those Arab nations to become Islamic. Qutb influenced Osama bin Laden. This is, this is exactly where he comes from. And then the leader of al-Qaeda today, Zawahiri, another student of uh, these guys. They started in the Muslim Brotherhood. They branched out and they began to wage jihad called it 
the jihad that's nearby and the jihad that's far away. Osama bin Laden's kicked out of Saudi Arabia. Why? Because he doesn't think the Saudis are a good enough Islamic government. He's trying to overthrow some of the Arab governments and make them Islamic. And he's plotting 9-11 to go attack and do jihad against the enemies far away. So this jihad movement was a real problem to some of those Arab governments, and it still is today. That will explain to you why you have a Muslim government right, in Iraq that's fighting this Muslim group of people. Why? Because they have different aims, completely different goals. So the Islamists, the Islamism movement, is trying to turn these nations. And here, here's a list of some of the organizations that come out of this today. Al-Qaeda is an Islamist organization. It's interested not only in striking the enemies of Islam in the West, interested in very much in transforming the nations in the Middle East. You see a lot of weak governments falling and being replaced by people like the Taliban, who want to take politics and religion and put them together, Al-Qaeda, who wants to put it together. You have Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and Syria, Al-Nusra, you'll read about them in the paper. That's the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. What are they trying to do? Trying to overthrow the Syrian government and make it an Islamic state. So it's Muslim fighting against Muslim with different aims to establish this uh, Islamism. Boko Haram, this isn't in the Middle East, but that's a, an Al-Qaeda-funded Al Boko Haram. Boko Haram is another Sunni organization that is an Islamist organization in Nigeria, and their goal is to turn that country into an Islamic country. The politics, the religion, all the same thing. That makes sense? All those groups come out of this, trans out of this roots, and then probably the most famous in the news right now is Hamas. Hamas is a Sunni uh, Muslim radical organization whose goals are to turn many of the countries around there into uh, Islamic countries. They were founded in 1987. They're an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, the guys that I just showed you, an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. Their charter, they have two purposes. Number one, destroy the state of Israel because they think they're invaders put there by imperialists like the United States and Britain after World War II, destroy the state of Israel and turn Palestine into an Islamic state. Does that make sense? So they're Islamic. What they want to do is they want to establish a government that's Islamic in that part of the world. All these small organizations and all these different nations are trying to do the same thing. They all want to take a government that's not Muslim enough and make it Muslim. And that's why you see Muslims fighting Muslims, is because the Islamists do not feel like this is set up the way the Koran says. And to be fair, they're right about that. Those governments are not set up the way the Koran envisions it. Make sense? Okay, questions? Pardon? Lots. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, I know I'm blitzing along. This is just so interesting to see where it comes from. I hope that it gives you an idea of what they're trying to do. Then I'm going to talk to you about the really bad guys who are trying to do something a little different. But let's pause and talk about this for a second. Okay. Do um, You said that there is a great reward for jihad, for fighting the enemy. Mm -hmm. 
So do they believe in heaven or in end times? What does that look like? That's a great question. Do Muslims believe in heaven or the end times? I'm going to talk to you about the Muslim view of the end times in our next lesson because I want to talk to you about where they see this is going. But let me answer about heaven. Yes, they do. They think that there is a, basically a heaven like you think of. In fact, they think Jesus is going to be there uh, with Muhammad, arm around each other's shoulder, except Jesus is a Muslim. Did I mention that part? Jesus is a Muslim, and he'll be there in heaven, and you do have eternal life with Allah, which is, remember, just the Arabic word for God, in heaven. So they do see the, there's an afterlife. They do understand a heaven. And then I'll talk to you about how they think the end of the world comes about in our next lesson, because it'll tell you where they're headed. Good question. So what are your thoughts about the potential Muslim civil war being the civil war that's spoken about in Revelation? Uh, the Muslim civil war, how does it play into Revelation? I apologize again, but that's exactly what I want to talk to you about in our next lesson. Is where does this go? How does, how does the book of Revelation, and your understanding of what, because the book of Revelation is telling you how God's end game works out. And then I'll show you how the Koran's end game works out. And by the way, the Sunnis and the Shiites disagree about this, which will explain why Iran wants a nuclear war and the last, or a nuclear weapon, and the last thing Saudi Arabia wants to happen is for Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Because they have different ideas of the end times, and those Iranians are nuts, according to the Saudi Arabians, right? So we'll talk about that next time when we talk about where this thing's going. So are all the terrorist organizations Sunni? No. All the terrorist organizations aren't Sunni. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, in a minute, about the uh, Shiite ones. The Sunni and Shiite terrorist organizations have a little bit different goals, but yeah, there are some of each one. It just depends on who's in the news. But the Sunnis, is 89% of Muslims in the world are Sunnis. You would expect there to be an awful lot of, of Sunni extremist or radical organizations, and there are. And they happen to be the ones most in the news. When I start giving you some names of the Shiite ones in a minute, you'll go, oh yeah, I remember when they were causing a lot of trouble. So they are not. There are radical Sunni and radical Shiite groups. But I've just talked about the Sunnis at this point. Um, are Muslims or Muslim terrorism spoken about in the Bible anywhere other than the story of Abraham, of course? Um, and do you consider that to be part of the end times as prophesied in the Bible? Yeah, the question is, is this talked about in the Bible? No, because stop and think about it. Muhammad isn't born until 570 years after Jesus. So in a historic sense, it's certainly not. The roots of it with Ishmael and Isaac and the Arab people, and the Jewish people, and the land, obviously that's played out. I'm going to share with you a really interesting passage out of uh, the book of Galatians that, that you don't realize it's prophetic when you read it until you put it in this light, in which case it really does foreshadow that the children of Ishmael and the children of Isaac, so Muslims roughly, and Jews, right, and Christians, because let's face it, Jesus is also descended from Isaac, that there's still conflict to happen between the two. So in that sense, the Bible does foreshadow it very much. Islam is not mentioned specifically in Revelation, but there's no question in my mind that Islam is a player in the end times. And so we'll talk about that. Okay, since there is no authority not established by God, 
What do we do with, or how do we view Islamist authorities and governments? Excellent. Okay, let me, I'll try to be really brief on this because it, it deserves its own lesson. But basically, that passage that the authorities are established by God, think of it this way. I'm not trying to water this down, but I want you to think of it this way. God allows good governments and God allows bad governments. God expects governments to be good. And Romans 13, by the way, goes on to tell you what is it that God expects of a government. That's very instructive and it's very interesting. And they're not all like that. Consequently, there are such things as unjust governments. But Christians are called to understand secular governments, good or bad, as still being used by God for his purposes. That does not mean they're good. It doesn't mean they're right. It simply means that God is big enough to use even the bad governments for his ultimate purpose, but woe to the bad governments. Does that make sense? In other words, it's part of the Christian understanding that, and here's the way I'd paraphrase it. God wants to make sure that you and I never lose sight of the fact that our mission is eternal and that we should not stoop to mere temporal pursuits. Does that make sense? In other words, it's not part of our Christian mission to go make sure every government out there is good. Will we do some of that? I hope that we will. Is that a good thing to do? Yes, it is. But I think God wants to make sure that we do not misunderstand that our purpose is not to go clean up the governments in the world. God has a much bigger purpose than that. So that's the sense in which I think you see that God understands the governments that you're going to have, and God is big enough to even use them. That's not even slightly consistent with an Islamic view of the world. It's not even consistent with a secular view of the world. It's a much bigger picture of where governments fit in the scheme of things with God. They're all agents to be used for his purpose. Hence, when we get to our next lesson and we talk about how does God take a mess like the Middle East and make anything out of it? Well, actually, it plays quite well, frankly, into the end time scenario. I'm not sure that the book of Revelation, okay, I'm exaggerating, but let me say it anyway. I'm not sure the book of Revelation can happen without something like the Middle East. Okay, we'll talk about that some more, but that's a good question. Can you just briefly go over the difference in the words ISIS and ISIL? Yeah, that's really semantics. So that organization goes by three names in English, and it is the Islamic State, and I'll tell you what they mean by that in just a second. That's our next topic. The Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant. Levant is a bigger area. Think of Levant as not just Syria, but Palestine and Jordan and all that. That area, that whole little kind of little Middle East area is called the Levant. So it's gone by different names, and people call it different things because of some, something they want to emphasize. I'm probably going to call it the Islamic State simply because that's what they think of themselves. But it's just semantics, just different names that we put on that organization. They happen to be operating right now in Iraq and Syria, hence the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. They do not, by any means, limit themselves to that. That's why they call themselves the Islamic State. We are the Islamic State. Well, needless to say, nobody else wants to acknowledge that, oh, yeah, you're the real deal. So, hence you get the different names. Since most of the Arabs in, that, uh, in this region are young and poorly educated, how much do they know about true Islam? Well, it's, it's not that everybody's poorly educated because some of the radical Islam are some of the brightest people in Islam. Uh, 
But I understand your question is that you get these folks who are recruited. How do they understand what Islam says the same way everybody does? They go to school in a madrasa, they go to the mosque and they hear a sermon, and what do they get taught? They get taught that Israel is an agent of Satan. They believe in Satan, by the way. In fact, they really believe in Satan, like he's really active in the world, and Israel's on his side. Oh, and so are you. And so the Western powers are agents of Satan. I mean, what did Ahmadinejad called America? The great Satan. I mean, and they mean that. I mean, from their point of view, that's what they mean. And so they get taught that in the same way that your kids get taught of, you know, why they shouldn't throw trash on the street. I mean, we got a whole generation that grew up that will correct you if you throw something out the window, right? Because it's not ecologically right. They got two generations in the Middle East who've been brought up hearing nothing but Israel is evil and must be kicked out and the Western powers are Satan trying to destroy Islam. So that really is how, what they understand and how they understand it. Consequently, you got an awful lot of really fired up, angry young men who are ready to go out and wage jihad. And that's exactly what you see happening. Makes perfect sense. Uh, can you justify the statement, no religion condones the killing of innocents with passages from the Koran? With what occurring? I'm sorry. With passages. Does the Koran justify that? Does the Koran justify the statement that I heard somebody say recently that <laughs> no religion uh, condones the killing condones of innocents? The killing of innocents? Well, let me just say this, uh, just try to be polite. Yeah, that sentiment doesn't make any sense whatsoever historically. I mean, it, it just makes absolutely no sense historically. It makes great sense to a secular mind, and it sounds really good. But in actuality, the Koran doesn't define those people as innocents. No religion that is killing someone else understands them to be innocents. And I know as, as crazy as it sounds to you and me when you see those images of these radical Islamists beheading people and all, I mean, it's much more than what you see on TV now. And just the, the terrible things they do, they don't think those are innocent people. They think those are people who are at war with Allah. They think it's their sacred duty. So a Muslim wouldn't even slightly agree with that. Now, if you're a Muslim who understands Islam as peaceful, and you want to agree with that, you might say it, but there's no historical basis for that, in, in my view. I mean, I just don't think you can get that, not only out of Islam, out of a number of religions, but they wouldn't agree with the statement. If you ask the Islamic State, these people that you're killing, these are just innocent people, they'd say, what are you talking about? These are not innocent people. So, obviously, the world's more complicated than that. Did I dance around that pretty well? Yeah. Can a Christian morally take an isolationist position about the conflict in the Middle East? Can a Christian morally take an isolationist position uh, about the conflict in the Middle East? Obviously, Christians disagree about that. So I'm gonna give you the two points of view and let you think that through. My job is not to tell you what to think. I really want us to, to think, you know, examine these things. There are Christians who would say that we can take an isolationist position. In other words, as Christians, we do not need to intervene in any armed way. That as Christians, we ought to be doing love. So let's go do humanitarian relief. Let's go put more uh, missionaries over there. Let's try to change the hearts and the minds of people. I'm not talking about changing the hearts and the minds of the people with the guns and hacking people's heads off. I'm talking about changing the hearts and the minds, because that's a hard argument, right? I'm talking about changing the hearts and minds of the thousands and millions of other people that don't like that either, right, that are over there. 
So you could take, in my view, be consistent with a Christian faith and say, I don't want to go fight them. I want to attack this problem. I want to take Christianity and transform the world. I believe that you can say it. Now, are there problems with that? Yeah, you're probably thinking to yourself, but what about this? What about this? On the flip side, there are Christians who would say, we have a duty to oppose evil where we see it, and we have a duty to go do what we can to help those people, and that there is a just war doctrine, which there is a just war doctrine in Christianity. There are Christians who think you can fight in a just war. You can't fight in a war just to go conquer people, to make more money or get more oil or do something, but you can go fight to save someone else's life. Both of those views are held sincerely and deeply by Christians. So, yes, I think that you will find Christians who sincerely and deeply hold both of those views. In fact, just last night on some news show, I heard two Christians arguing those two very views. But good question, and it's worth some thought. Do Muslims believe in the Holy Spirit? Muslims, uh, Holy Spirit, no. And certainly not the way you think of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, they don't think of Jesus the way you think of Jesus. Because they think that the way we think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one, is heresy. In fact, when Christians get killed, that's usually why. Muslims kill Christians for heresy, for saying that I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Jesus is the Son of God is a heretical statement. Jesus, in their view, is a prophet, less than Muhammad, but a good guy sent by God. But that is blasphemy to say that God has any other associates or any other peace, any other divinity than God. So no, they don't believe it in that way. Well, let me move on to the next state. So we talked about the Islamists. And so you have these various organizations who are trying to change the different nations. And you see conflict all over the place, Boko Haram in Nigeria, You've got uh, Hamas in the Gaza Strip. You've got the various Al-Qaeda's all over the different nations. They're trying to turn them into Islamic nations. But here's a really astute observation by Henry Kissinger. Uh, and he said this, in the purest version of Islamism, the state cannot be the point of departure for an international system because states are secular, hence they're illegitimate. At best, they may achieve a provisional status en route to a religious entity on a larger scale. The, uh, those who seek uh, the caliphate, those who see themselves as very conservatively Islam and originally Islam, and this is true historically. In the beginning, Islam didn't observe any nations. There was gonna be one big old nation called the Islamic caliphate, the Islamic state, the Islamic nation, not Egypt the Islamic nation and Saudi Arabia the Islamic nation, uh-uh. Their idea is, is the Koran talks about one big body of believers erase the lines of the nations. Those are the ones who are pursuing restoring the caliphate. And to be fair, that's very well grounded in the Koran. That is how Islam started when they burst out of Saudi Arabia. Now, they didn't stay that way. The human rivalries and all kind of chunked it up into rival groups but Muhammad's vision was one big Islamic nation, and that's called the Caliphate, and that's what you see happening here. For the Sunnis, you see a thing called Salafi or Wahhabi, you'll hear those two terms, and that's a very conservative form of Islam, and it leads to this idea, and the number one Sunni group doing that is ISIS, the Islamic State. 
ISIS does not understand its mission to turn Iraq into an Islamic nation or Syria into an Islamic nation, this is partly why Al-Qaeda and ISIS split ways. ISIS was Al-Qaeda. It was Al-Qaeda in Iraq before uh, al-Baghdadi took it a different direction, and now they've parted ways. And one of the reasons is this, is that they have a different vision. They want to erase the borders, not just turn the various nations in that way. They want the whole Islamic caliphate. They want the whole world. Their goals are not just Iraq, not just Syria. It's every nation on the earth, starting with where they are and gobble up all the Muslim nations and get them acting right, and then attack the Western world. That makes sense? That's a different vision than Islamism, isn't it? It's a more recent kind of resurgence coming out of that. What happened is some of these groups get disillusioned with Muslim fighting Muslims just trying to turn this country Islamic. Their attitude is, wait a minute, if you go back to the Quran, that's way too low a goal. We need to turn the whole world into one big Islamic nation. That's what ISIS wants to do. That's why some of the other Islamic nations, even Sunni ones, are willing to resist ISIS. Does that make sense? I mean, you gotta ask yourself, well, if that's really what the Quran says, why doesn't Syria go, yeah, let's, I'm with you guys. Why doesn't Iraq go, hey, I'm with you. Or Egypt, hey, yeah, come on in. Instead, no, they're opposing ISIS. They oppose it for other reasons, but fundamentally, they don't have that same vision of what uh, the Quran is about. So what you see here, this is, I put a, a different map, this is one, but you see, that ISIS, this Sunni organization, begins in Syria and Iraq, but if you're Jordan, if you're Saudi Arabia, obviously if you're Iran, if you're Turkey, you're concerned about these guys because their vision of Islam means you don't get to be a nation anymore. That opens the door for the possibility of a coalition, doesn't it? But we talked earlier about why it's also very difficult to get a coalition. But there is a basis to resist ISIS, and that's why you'll see at least a list of a bunch of nations that say, I've signed on to fight ISIS. Now, when you see guns in hands of Muslims fighting them, that will be interesting, and you don't see that yet. But you can at least understand why a Muslim might fight another Muslim. They have a really different vision. Uh, CIA estimates that the Islamic State has 20 to 30,000 fighters right now. But let me move on to the other group. That's a Sunni group. Move on to the other group that's a Shiite group that's trying to do the same thing. The Shiite group that's trying to do this is called the Nation of Iran. Iran has always, since the revolution back in the 70s that put the Ayatollahs in power, kicked out the Shah, and instead of having a country that had a lot of Islamic people, it now became an Islamic country. They never had any intention of staying in the boundaries of Iran. They want a nuclear weapon. Why? Want a nuclear weapon so they can get on about expanding the caliphate. So the idea of the caliphate isn't just a Sunni or a Shiite idea that these radical groups see it that way. Some of the other Shiite radical groups you probably will know are, for example, uh, Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a Shiite group, and they operate in Lebanon, they operate in Syria. Uh, there are other smaller groups, the Mahdi army in Iraq. You hear about the uh, Muqtada al-Sadr and his Mahdi army. That's a Shiite extremist group. Their goal is to conquer whatever country they happen to be in, but they have no intention of stopping there. Their goal is very much like ISIS. Iran's role has been a little different. Instead of just saying, let's just all go fight, 
They tried that, by the way, in a nine-year war between Iran and Iraq, and it was bloody and it was ugly and it was bad. Iran's strategy was, you know, to actually win this game, to get the rest of the Muslim states to join, and then for us to go fight the West, we need a nuclear weapon. So now you can understand how this makes it even more complicated. Obviously, the West is a little worried about a nuclear weapon in Iran. If you think we're worried, Israel is frantic about that idea. Why? Because Iran's attitude is, we need to destroy Israel, of course, and then we need to move on and bring everybody into this big Islamic caliphate. Nuclear Iran, nightmare for the West and for Israel. Also a nightmare if you're Egypt or you're Saudi Arabia. Why? Same reason ISIS is a nightmare. Yes, you're fellow Muslims, but in Iran's case, you're Shiites. We don't even agree theologically. And you want to erase all the boundaries. And wait a minute, we don't want to erase the boundaries. Even Saudi Arabia, that's an Islamic nation, doesn't want to stop being a nation. And so you see the complexity of this. That's why the United States does have some possibilities to broker something in the Middle East, because you have those tensions with each other. So you basically have those who see, take a nation and turn it into an Islamic nation, but ISIS and Iran, Hezbollah, the Mahdi army, those guys are trying to do something even bigger. They're trying to change the whole Middle East into an Islamic caliphate, and as soon as we're done with that, you're next. In other words, we're going to get on about what started in the first century of Islam, and we're going to kickstart it and continue it. That's what these groups see themselves doing. They don't think they're bad. They think they're restoring the original form of Islam and getting back to what they're supposed to be doing all along. Make sense? That's what those groups are doing. One final question that comes into everybody's mind, but wait a minute. At the end of the day, you have Muslims killing Muslims. How in the world do you justify that at the end of the day? Well, two thoughts. In the 13th century, I mean, this has been thought about a long time ago, a guy who's very influential in these radical groups, a guy named Tamiya, he lived in 1260 or so AD. Here's what's his attitude. He says, look, if you're trying to spread Islam in the world and you're out there killing a bunch of people and some of them happen to be Muslim, well, that's unlucky. But... Allah will make up for it in the next life. It's like, hey, we kill a few Muslims, well, you'll have a better life in the next life. In other words, that's not really a sinful thing. You got to, you know, you want to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. You want to conquer the world for Islam, probably going to kill a few Muslims. So it kind of laid the theological basis that, oh, okay, if some Muslims get killed, Allah will take care of them in heaven. So let's not worry about it. That's why, I mean, it's not the only reason why, but you really don't see these Muslim organizations trying to target their bombs and like, hey, let's not wound civilians, let's just get soldiers, totally foreign idea, isn't it? What do you see on the Western side? You're gonna get criticized if your bomb happens to blow up in the wrong place and kill the wrong people. That's not an Islamic idea at all. Second thing is this, here's an interesting quote from Zawahiri, this is the leader of Al-Qaeda. Whoever loves an unbeliever is an unbeliever. This is why when you see Hamas, for example, in the Gaza Strip, I showed you that picture of them lining up people in Gaza and executing them on the street. Those are Muslims. Why are they executing them? Because they think that they are collaborating with Israel. They've been accused of collaborating with Israel. 
and that doesn't mean much over there. You don't have to do much to be considered a collaborating, in which case you are as bad as an unbeliever. So what radical Islam is saying, what the Islamic State is saying, why they can cut the heads off Muslim people too, by the way. You just don't see it. They're cutting the heads off a lot of people, a lot of Muslim people, because you're not really a good Muslim. You don't see it the way I see it, therefore you're not really a good Muslim, therefore you are an unbeliever, so I can kill you just like I'd kill the average American or the Jew. Make sense? It, there is a theological basis, not all Muslims agree with this, but that's the theological basis for why Muslims can attack other Muslims. Fortunately, the radical Muslims are the ones that think that way, and the more moderate Muslims don't see it that way. So when it comes to wanting to war with each other, it puts the moderate Muslims in a very difficult situation, doesn't it? And that's why I say there are a lot of Muslims who understand Islam as a religion that's peaceful, but they are not the ones who are shaping the destiny of Islam in the world today. Okay? Well, I hope that's helpful. When you pick up the newspaper, start ticking through the different things. You've got the Arab nationalism, you have the Sunni and the Shia concerns. You have those who want an Islamic caliphate and other Muslims who say, wait a minute, that's going too far. And hopefully now as you read it, you can say, I begin to see why some of these players might be acting the way that they are. And also understanding the, how complicated the situation is. Well, we'll finish our series next time by saying, okay, so where does this go and how does God make any sense out of it at all? How do the Muslims think this thing plays out? And how does the book of Revelation and the Bible think this plays out? And can God possibly use this mess to do anything good? And we'll talk about that next time. Thanks, guys.